John chapter 2, verse 17. The context of this scripture I'll preach, but after the first cleansing of the temple, when Jesus cleared the temple of everything that did not belong there, His disciples remembered an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that was fulfilled in that moment in Jesus Christ. John recorded it in John 2, 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal has consumed me. And I'd like to preach to you on the zeal of the Lord. God bless you. Please be seated. Amen. The zeal of thine house, Jesus said, or the disciples said of Jesus, has eaten me up, consumed me. The word zeal is pretty common in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Zeal is a healthy jealousy for the people you love, for the things that matter to you. You could say that zeal is demonstrated as a passionate enthusiasm for a cause. Whatever that cause may be. Zeal, to boil, to be passionate, to be on fire for something that really matters to you. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. The Bible said that God is a jealous God. This zeal is often defined in word studies of the word as a jealousy, something that you're passionate about. God's jealousy is justified in His people in the same way that a husband or wife should be jealous over their spouse if they're being unfaithful, if they're tempted to infidelity. God loves His people. And He is jealous over us. He has a zeal for us because we matter to Him and we belong to Him. The Apostle Paul told the new believers in Corinth, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused you. We would say the word engaged. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste or pure virgin. Zeal in the spiritual sense is when we share God's enthusiastic passion for the things that matter to Him. We are not apathetic about things that God is passionate about, but we get on God's page and what moves Him moves us. That's what zeal is. There's a lot of examples of zeal in the Bible. One is a pretty gory example of a man named Phineas or Phineas. He was a priest. In Old Testament Israel, they began to intermarry and they began to be with pagan wives and they gave themselves to immorality and idolatry. But Phineas, the priest, speared to death an Israelite man and his Midianite mistress and the Lord told Moses that Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, 
has turned away the wrath from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake. Now that would seem a little extreme, but God said that Phineas's intervention in this immorality caused God to give Israel a break in his judgment toward him. The prophet Elijah in the Old Testament had a contest at Mount Carmel. Who was the real God? And they would call fire down from heaven. And Elijah, after something like a 57-word prayer, called fire down from heaven. It consumed the sacrifice and water and the wood, water in the middle of a trout. And then Elijah put to death the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove in his zeal for the Lord. He told the Lord later that I have been zealous for you. I cared about the things that matter to you. I love the zeal of Caleb. He was 80 years old. When he went to Joshua and he said, give me this mountain. I know I'm 80, but Moses promised it. And so I'm ready to go take this mountain for God. I'll drive out the enemies. He was passionate about a promise that God had given him. In the New Testament, there is a Saul of Tarsus. His breathing out threatenings and slaughter, persecuting the people of God, arresting them, throwing them in the jail, causing them to blaspheme, blaspheme God, giving his voice when they were put to death. But God arrested him on the road to Damascus. And the same passion that moved him against the people of God moved him for the people of God. Paul became, Saul became Paul, and Paul became an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. He would start churches in over 20 cities. He would travel over 10,000 miles, preaching the gospel everywhere, especially where there was nothing. He went where there was no foundation and left churches behind. He was an apostle. Amen. Now, when people are zealous, when people are passionate, sometimes they are misunderstood. Amen. Festus. The Roman governor said, Paul, much learning has made you mad. You are out of your mind crazy about this Jesus. And I remind you that even the family of Jesus came to him. Mark 3, Luke 8. And they were worried that he was overdoing it. Wasn't taking care of himself. Wasn't eating right. He seemed to be consumed with something that was a mission of his life. That's what zeal is. The zeal of thine house. Has eaten me up. Zeal is always the opposite of apathy and indifference. Zeal is ardent devotion and fervor for a cause. Now there are times that zeal can be misplaced. Like Saul's misplaced zeal. And Paul told the Roman church that, that the Jewish people they have a zeal but it is not after knowledge. The New Living Translation says it is a misplaced zeal. But when zeal is present, real zeal is demonstrated in action. You cannot just sit there for long when you're consumed with something that really matters. Amen. Amen. Zeal is always passionate, never apathetic or dispassionate. Zeal. Will call you out of the spectator's stands. And onto the playing field to make a difference. Amen. 
And there are too many people in life that have the bystander syndrome. They will watch somebody beaten and murdered and just look at it going on. They'll watch people go to hell and never give a testimony, never teach a Bible study, never say a word, see a need that needs to be met and not meet it because they're somewhere watching on the stand. But I say that zeal will call you out of nothing and it will make you do something about it. Zeal. The zeal of thine house. Hath eaten me up. When you study the nature of Jesus, sometimes we translate God into our terms instead of biblical terms. We look at Jesus through the lens of the God of the Old and New Testament. He's Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus bodily. He was holy just as God is holy because he was God manifested in the flesh. And Jesus was zealous, jealous to protect what belonged to God. Now I know we'd rather think of Jesus as meek and mild, the good shepherd, the prince of peace, the rose of Sharon, him that went to the trial and opened not his mouth. We would like to think of Jesus like that. But let us not forget that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And God is a consuming fire. So Jesus in the days of his flesh was zealous for what belonged to God. For what mattered to God. He was hardest in his teaching and rebuke on religious pretenders. People that claimed to know God but didn't act like it. Didn't live like it. Amen. He was zealous after he performed his first miracle at Cana of Galilee. Jesus went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. There are three Passovers mentioned in the ministry of Jesus. Now we know he went to the feast every year with his parents growing up. And I'm sure he saw then what he saw in this text in John 2. When he would go with his parents, he saw religion going wrong. He saw carnality creeping in. He saw people not really being sincere in their love for God. They drew with him, to, near to him with their mouth, but their heart was far from him. That's quoted in the Old and New Testament. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. And when he walks into the temple, precincts. Probably in the court of the Gentiles. He sees something that kind of comes all over him. John writes about it. Nearly time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And he looks in the area of the temple. As I mentioned, those commentators would agree. was not in the holy place. It was in the court of the Gentiles. A flea market set up. Merchants selling cattle. Sheep, doves for sacrifices, dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. In the place of prayer for all people is a bazaar. It's a flea market. And it did serve a practical purpose. If you were a Jewish person and you had traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, it would be impractical to bring 
an animal all that way. So you could just come to the temple, bring your money, you could buy a sacrifice, and you could offer your sacrifice to the Lord. You came from a distant country. Remember there are like 18 of them mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost. So you come to Jerusalem, and you've got currency from some other foreign country. But you can come in the convenience of the temple. Look how easy they made it. And you can exchange your money for money that's acceptable in the temple to pay your temple tax. And they say that probably there was a really ripped off rate of exchange. These people would come and pay exorbitant prices. But John 2 does not discuss that side of the story about the corruption that was there. It was just the misuse of the intended use of the temple. While this was extremely convenient, that's not why it was there. If you were coming to worship and worship had turned into something else, it had to be demotivating and discouraging for money-hungry merchants. But these makeshift corrals, housing cattle and oxen, sheep, dove, cages of dove there. Imagine how it looked. And I've even imagined how it smelled. If you've ever been to a stockyard, you may know. Or a barn, you may know what I'm talking about. And Jesus, he walks into his father's house. And he sees everything that is going on. It's not a fit of rage. He reaches somewhere maybe on the floor and he picks up a, a rope and then one there. Maybe a leash for a sheep and, and begins to weave it together into a whip. And then he begins to drive those people out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers tables. Coins went all over the floor, John says. He turned over their other tables and he went to the people that sold the doves and said, Get these things out of this place. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And it's amazing to me. Jesus was probably not the most imposing figure in that room that day. There are certainly men that had a lot of invested there. But no one defied him. No one stood up to him. I have to believe their own consciences convicted them. And there was an authority in the presence of Jesus Christ that made them know that it was more than a man standing there. That it was God's displeasure for what they had turned the house of God into. And they fled. And Jesus cleansed the temple. Nobody fighting back. The disciples are watching all this. Now, it doesn't they say they got involved, by the way. They're in the stands. He's on the field. I just thought of that, right? And they're watching Jesus, and some one of them, we don't really know who thought of it first, but a scripture came to their mind. And they said the way he's acting right now reminds us of what was written in the Psalms, in Psalm 69. They remembered the prophecy from the scriptures. The New Living Translation says, Passion for God's house will consume me. Or in our text in the New Living, New King James Version, that his disciples remembered 
that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This Old Testament psalm was applied in that moment to Jesus Christ who was setting right what was wrong. He was cleansing his church. He was cleansing his house of something that had crept in that didn't belong there. An abuse of the use. A mismanagement of the mission. And Jesus said, get this out of here and let's restore the purpose of this house. This is my house. This is the house of God. Zealous for his father's house. Now in the Old Testament, Isaiah spoke about the incarnation, God becoming flesh, God incarnate, God in man. He spoke about this in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He said of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. And then the last line of Isaiah 9 and 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In other words, God gets highly motivated about His purpose. God cares about His kingdom. I want to tell you that however much you love the church, He loves us more. However much you love one another, God loves us more. Amen. He's got more invested in this than we can ever fathom. The zeal of mine house has eaten me up. And while zeal is usually attributed of our zeal for God, God is zealous for us. The temple, the sanctified place for sacrifice and worship was corrupted. Now I know you cannot house God in a building. Isaiah wrote about it. The heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where, where is the house that you're going to build me, the Lord said. And where is the place of my rest? In other words, you cannot put God in, in the walls of a church or a temple. Amen. But when something is dedicated to God, when something is set aside for a holy purpose... God then takes up residence there. You could say it belongs to him. And that temple, Herod's temple, you know, Solomon's and destroyed, and finally this is Herod's rebuilt temple. And Jesus is there. And while the building in itself, it's not made of different stones or wood or furnishings of other places in Jerusalem, but it has been dedicated to God's use, for God's presence. Amen. So it means something to God when you say that I am giving this to you. I am setting this aside to your purpose. Amen. And when that purpose is corrupted, there is a passion that comes over God for the intended use, not the misuse. That is why Jesus braided a whip and ran them out. Because that stuff has no business being here. At 12 years old, he said, I must be about my father's business. That's a different business. 
and selling sheep and oxen and changing money in the temple. Jesus cleansed the place because of the purpose of that place had been compromised. Zeal, he said in John 2.17, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So let me ask you a question. What is it that makes you braid a whip and cleanse the temple? What is it that moves you to action to make a difference? Are you more passionate or passive? Are you more likely to feel something and not do something? Are there times that you feel something so strong that it motivates you? That it moves you to come out of the stands and onto the playing field? Because a zeal, a passion, an enthusiasm for something that matters comes over you. I know that not all causes are the church cause or the kingdom cause. But they're noble causes. But the greatest cause in the world is the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we're making a difference of where people spend eternity. It is heaven or hell. And it matters more than anything. Do you get passionate about the right things? I mentioned earlier, it's here in my notes, Romans 10 and 2, that the Jews have a zeal, but misplaced zeal, not according to knowledge. False Jewish Christian teachers were trying to get the Galatian Christians to go back under the law. Paul wrote to them and said that they zealously affect you. They've come in here teaching this false doctrine, but they're very passionate about it and they've, they've affected you by what they've said because of how they feel about it. And Paul said, this is not a good thing. He said, but it is a good thing to be zealously affected always in a good thing. In other words, God loves passion. God loves zeal. God loves it when a person says, something needs to be done about this. Let's get down there. Let's do something. I cannot sit back and do nothing any longer. Titus 2.14 tells us that God saved us to be a set-apart people, a peculiar people, who would be zealous for good works. It didn't say good attitude, although we need that. It didn't say good character, although we need that. But God saved us that we would be zealous, passionately enthusiastic to do something to make a difference. Amen. When I was... And an older teenager, my later teenage years, trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life. I know you had it figured out long before my age, but I was figuring it out. I'm talking about 18 and 19 years of age, somewhere in there. And I, and I kept trying to project myself into this career and that career. And I don't want to superimpose my story on you that, you know, my call to preach means everybody needs a call to preach. And that's not going to be your calling. But I want you to understand, like, the heart of what happened in me. And I really didn't feel like there was anything that I could project myself into 
a career in dentistry or engineering or, you know, merchandising. I just, I try to visualize that. I remember being in a meeting at work one day and, and this trainer told us what we really needed to do. Basically, forget the time clock, you know, sell your soul to the company store. He didn't say it, but that's what he was saying. And I remember sitting in that meeting thinking, I love this company. I work really hard, but I don't know. I don't live for this. <clears throat> I remember that vividly, and I would have been about 18 years old. So I thought, you know, when I looked at my life, I'm pretty good at this. I'm okay at that. I did okay in school, top 25%, but really not the top 10%. I don't know if I was capable of that or not. But, you know, oh, well, just kind of coast through and, you know, pass, and that's okay. Like a lot of my friends, just get by and not really be outstanding in anything you did. Now, on my personality, I'm kind of an all-in guy. But I've got to have something to be all-in for. It's got to be worth it, right? And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see that. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't find it. But when the Lord gave me direction, which I preached about through the years in various forms. I don't think I've ever told this exactly. When I finally felt the Lord assigning me a purpose in life, that it's a big world, and if you want to be involved in my kingdom, there is a place for you. Knowing that there is a place for me filled me with passion. It changed my decisions to go to Bible college instead of secular college, which is not bad, but for me, that was direction. And when I went to Bible college, my study habits, which I had to learn all over again, which I had more or less abandoned in high school, required me to stay up half the night reading and studying, but my GPA went up, my passion went up, my discipline went up, because I found something worth living for and giving myself to. I just want to say, I'm not bragging about myself, but I'm telling you what happened in me when I found something to be zealous about, when I found something to give myself to. The zeal. Of mine house has eaten me up. Back then there was a popular song. Based on a poem that was kind of. A little bit of the story of my life. Only one life. So soon it shall pass. Only what's done. For Christ will last. So live for Jesus all your days. It's the only life that pays. When you recall. You have but one life. And when I thought about how I wanted to spend my one life, I wanted to spend it doing something that really mattered. And regardless of your career, vocation, educational background, I hope you give your best to your job every day of your life because you should and the Bible teaches it and I teach it. But that is not ultimately our purpose in life. Our purpose is to worship and glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our purpose is bigger and better than what we do to put clothes on our back and food on our table and a place to live. It is for something that matters for eternity. The zeal of mine house hath eaten me up. Praise God. So I started thinking about what zeal looks like at Atlanta West. I'm really honored 
and blessed to serve an amazing church of some of the most motivated, dedicated people I've ever seen in my life. People like my parents, frankly, and I like that. But I was thinking about zeal. Zeal in Atlanta West as people cleaning our church and caring for our campus with the same degree of dedication as if they were singing on the platform on Easter Sunday. Zeal is what I see people showing up early to open this building and practice music or songs. It's our production team working in the back long before you get here to make sure they get it right and praying to God that they put the scripture on the screen at the right time that the pastor needs it. That's zeal to me. Zeal, passion, is people that serve in the parking lot in the heat and the cold and the rain, whatever the conditions are, that greet you when you come in this house, that usher you to a seat, the safety team that protects us and helps us if there's an emergency. People that love God and they love His house. And I'm saying that in the generic sense of the church of God. Zeal is the culture of generosity that is the hallmark of the people of this church. Who give the tithing and missions and the future of our church. Zeal is people just like you. You share your testimony. You lead people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't punch a clock to serve. You are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ every day, all day, wherever you go. Zeal is our discipleship team developing people into fully devoted followers of Jesus. They serve while we're worshiping on Sunday mornings. Welcome to the family, new life class, spiritual disciplines, apostolic identity, 201, the organizational side of helping people be more like Jesus Christ. But zeal is time that you take with people who are trying to find their way to God and get established and a conversation and a Bible study and a word of encouragement and staying connected to them helps them develop a foundation of truth that will save their soul. Thank you for that. That is zeal to me that I see every week, week in and week out in Atlanta West. I see zeal in our small group leaders that don't need another thing to do, but they have a small group so they can meet people on common ground and lead them to holy ground and connect people to the Lord and the body of Christ. Zeal is caring for people who experience seasons of sickness and loss. And I thank God for every person who checks on someone who's in the hospital, who's going through a difficult time, who just lost a loved one, but you don't forget them. I see zeal demonstrated over and over in this church. Zeal is our baptismal team that I talked about earlier. They're ready every week to baptize people in the name of Jesus. Zeal is hope ministry that for almost 17 years has gone downtown in Atlanta to minister to homeless people Week in and week out, they love people that don't have a place to live. I thank God for that. Zeal is prison ministry that helps the incarcerated try to find their way to God. Zeal is our beloved nursery workers who keep our kids happy, 
so you can worship with an undistracted mind. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be on our nursery workers. One of the harder places to serve in ministry. Zeal is our hospitality teams. Hosting events like launch conference. Serving families at funerals. We were here till after 11 o'clock Friday night. Volunteers cleaning up after serving the Arbelaeus family. Zeal is demonstrated in the terms. The teams who serve chips and crossover and crowd and hyphen and every other area of ministry. Zeal is that children's ministry this past week after long days at work being here to minister to kids. Amen. On an average Sunday, we have 123 kids and workers in chips in the back. They're back there while we're up here and those kids are receiving the Holy Ghost becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank God for them. The zeal that they have for the kingdom of God. Bible quizzers and coaches memorizing and internalizing the word of God. Last week I mentioned children's ministry or just a minute ago, Brother Jury talked about it. But I thank God for the 88 volunteers who came after work and came to serve. And on Thursday night, because we had a funeral service on Friday night, they stayed and tore it all down. And when we all left on Thursday night, we were ready for a funeral on Friday afternoon except for the general cleaning. That's because people have a zeal for the house of the Lord. I thank God for you. I commend you. I want to tell you that you are making a difference. That's why seven children received the gift of the Holy Ghost last week because somebody had a zeal. On Thursday night while the children's service was going on VBC, I saw like nine or ten kids. They were right up here gathered around one young man, one boy that was praying to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I knew I was preaching on zeal today. I looked at those kids praying, crying, staying with it for a long time. I thought, yes, Lord, that's what zeal is. That's what passion is. Somebody cares about the things that matter to God. You don't ever see it, but trustee board meetings, long hours given, pastoral staff, all of our employees serving the Lord in this, to this church, serving the Lord by serving this church, day and night, and whatever it takes. Never a complaint. You know, it's whatever it takes to get it done. Zeal are our amazing Bible readers who spend time in the Word of God 80 to 100 every year that read their Bible from cover to cover. And everybody that attempts it, thank God for you. Zealous people who pray and fast, both systematically and sacrificially. Some going on extended fast, over 20 days, almost 30 days. Pastors, prayer partners, we need more of you to make a monthly trip to the church. Our monthly ladies prayer meeting. Zeal of people that love God. And love his church. On Friday night, the memorial service for Brother Luis Arbelaez, one of the stories was about his love for prayer. He was a part of Pastor's Prayer Partner Team 2, Brother John Franzen. 
the last time we knew that he was here was December 11. Brother Franzen and Brother Luis took their picture in the foyer decorated for Christmas. Brother John recorded part of the conversation, told Brother Arbalaeus he was. Amazing, I have that recording and Brother John sent me some notes. But when Brother Arbalaeus came, he used to live just right here, not five minutes away. And almost every Saturday night he would come and he liked to pray right over here. That was his prayer spot. And I always tried to greet him before he left and thank him for coming. But when he got cancer, it wasn't as easy to come to prayer meetings on Saturday night more than once a month. And then his cancer got worse and he had to move no longer five minutes away. But now he's living with Mikey and Vanessa 25 or 30 minutes away. Brother Townsend and I have been to their house and so you would think you got cancer. You live 30 minutes away now depending on traffic and all of that. So you've got a lot of reasons to not drive your silver Toyota Tacoma to prayer meeting. But it was here a lot. The distance didn't make a difference to him. He loved to pray. The Lord would wake him up at 3 o'clock in the morning routinely to pray. But he had a habit of prayer. It was a zeal for the house of the Lord that it consumed him. And so sacrifice was not really part of his vocabulary. When Brother Townsend and I visited him in his home, he was so sorry that he couldn't come and pray like he used to because his cancer was taking his life. But when cancer took his life, God took him to glory because he was passionate about the things that mattered to God. The zeal of thine house has consumed me. Eaten. Eaten me up. I found that zeal is contagious. Paul told the Corinthian church that when you committed to give, which it took them a while to do, he said the Macedonians, people that lived in Achaia, he said your zeal has stirred up a lot of other people. We don't trumpet this, but other people know about the volunteerism of this church. Other people know about the sacrificial giving of this church. And you may not know it, but somebody in a church that's been dead and somebody in a church that's not been generous hears about your giving. And like the people around the world in Paul's day, they're stirred up by the zeal that you demonstrate for the Lord. So here's what I want to tell you. If you want to start a movement, then move. If you want somebody to get up and go, then you've got to get up and go first. If you want people to care, then you must model caring. If you want people to give, model giving. If you want people to do what the Bible declares, then just in your quiet, unassuming way, find a place to make a difference in the kingdom of God and become passionate about the things that move the heart of God. When God came in flesh, he walked into his temple and he said, this has got to go. If God is going to stay, let's drive it out. Let's get it right. The zeal 
of thine house hath eaten me up. Praise God. So let me ask you a question again. Has some stuff crept into your temple that doesn't belong there? Has your passion been diminished by the sheep and the oxen and the dove and the money changers and the entanglements of this world that like weeds grow up and chuck grow up and choke out the word of God? I want to remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul, anointed by the Holy Ghost, 1 Corinthians 6 19. What? He says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. Your temple, your body, does not belong to you. Regardless of the mantra of contemporary culture, you are not your own. I am not my own. And he tells them why. For you were bought with a price. Now in those days when slavery was common, being bought meant something. That your rights were gone. That you belonged to someone else. You are no longer your own. So what do you do about that? Paul tells them, therefore, because you belong to God and you are not your own because you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, God's property. So if there's anything in your temple that doesn't belong to a temple belonging to God, right now would be a good time. To say, God, forgive me. I now braid a whip and I drive out the stuff that has crept into this house that doesn't belong. 